In today's episode, I have a reoccurring guest, Sean Ost. He is a mental health professional and social worker. Along with him, I have Betty Taylor, former law enforcement, gang task force member, and SWAT team member. We will be covering a laundry list of topics in today's conversation. It'll be everything from police culture, mental health, defunding the police department, and some murder and poverty and crime. I'm Sean Oss. I've been uh, a mental health professional and a social worker for about 22 years. Uh, I've worked at length with uh, the Seattle and King County area homeless population. I specialize in children's mental health and uh, couple and families work and uh, in conduct disordered teens. And uh, I've been working for Child Protective Services uh, in Washington State for about. Uh, 12 years now. Wow. Um, Betty and yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm former law enforcement special. I'm still in um, investigations for the state of Washington, but um, here called If You um, Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here Anymore. The story about my family and how the criminal justice system um, has affected my family and because of the ongoing generational trauma and mental health issues that uh, were fostered in my family and uh, resulted in numerous um, convictions and uh, murders. Wow. Um, you were also uh, a SWAT team member, correct? And you worked on a gang yes. task force as mm-hmm. well, right? So. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I was uh, mentioned in the book, the demilitarization of uh, the police force, um, of, of uh, the public, of police force with Radley Blanco. And um, I was one of the first female SWAT team members in my department. Betty is also an author of an upcoming book called If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. It's about her family's legacy of poverty, crime, and mental illness in rural America. This book of hers will be available on March 16th of 2021, and you can actually go to Amazon right now and do a pre-order. We start this conversation with mental health and the prison system. And it's it's about the mental health uh, and the criminal justice system in my family. And to say that mental health really is is not a priority in the prison system is is kind of a euphemism, right? I mean, for those of you that don't know, I think that really kind of goes without saying. Yeah, because the prisons now are are asylums. They're... These people go in, they get no treatment. I have, like I was saying earlier, you know, I have, I have a sister who is serving life in prison for murdering her abuser in the state of Missouri. She gets very limited. She talks to a psychologist, I, I'm sorry, a psychiatrist once a month, and she gets no reform for her mental health issues, even though she has an IQ of 68, which for people who don't know is, is, is very low. She, but she's uh, functioning at a very low level. And um, she's a stroke victim. She was a stroke victim before she went into prison. So sometimes she doesn't even know where she's at. So that's why I talk a lot in my book about the mental health issue. Yeah, there's definitely an issue or problem in, in America with mental health. Um, so it's, you know, I don't know too much about it, but uh, sometimes I've, I've heard the situations where they'll get in to a hospital, get checked in, but they're checked out. Within 72 hours, all they end up having to do is say, I feel okay, or I'm not going to harm myself or anybody else, and then they're out. 
So, and and right. is it true that we really can't, we can't control it and say, I need to put my daughter or I need to put my brother or sister in a mental health institution or, or a hospital and have them checked out. Now, how does that work? Well, with, in my case, in the state of Missouri, which is a lot different than, you know, here on the West Coast where I live now, but my sister's adult son actually witnessed this crime mm-hmm. or maybe was even involved. I don't know. I mean, I've got theories in my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to say a lot, but uh, anyway, um, and, he, and he has a, a lower IQ, low functioning um, as well. And uh, my husband at the time and I tried in vain to get um, – him, he's a schizophrenic, get him into our care as our, you know, as his guardian things. And he would avoid it and they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't do anything because he had to go to court because he has civil rights as well. You know, he, even though he, um, he, he has rights and we, we all want everybody's rights protected, but he would go, he, he would avoid being served. So he would never know the court date. So the, then they said, well, he has to be here in court before we can give you guys guardianship, even though we had thousands and literally thousands of pages of mental of uh, documentation uh, to say that he could not function on his own. He was homeless. Well, he disappeared and we found him several months later in Europe. Somehow he had obtained a uh, passport and uh, one of his, um, you know, voices or whatever had told him to go to Rome. And so we put him on a plane from Rome to Frankfurt to then to Portland and the, to Seattle. We were going to take him up to Seattle because that was the cheapest way we could get him out of the country. He had extended his visa and the, the State Department in, in Rome was helping us. He gets off the plane in Frankfurt and disappears. So he was living in Germany for two years, you know, uh, without his meds. Um, and there's nothing we could do. So I flew to Germany and... Um, the court system over there would not can help us because he was in, in Germany and they uh, he was claiming sanctuary. <laughs> so I had to go through the whole court system in Germany, even though he's an American citizen, to get him back over here because you know he has he has rights as well and you know we want to protect us. But that's the that's the nightmare I've been living in. And he has uh, lost both of his feet because he's been out in the cold and uh, has gotten gangrene in him. So he's in a wheelchair on the streets in Germany. And this is someone who's so, yeah, it's, uh, Sean knows a little bit of the story, but it's, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, the mental health system is really, uh, getting, getting conservatorship or guardianship over someone is very difficult because they have rights, which we all want our rights protected. But I mean, even with 3000 pages of medical documentation, my husband and I had, we still couldn't get him because in the state of Missouri, he had to be served. Mm. And, and he's in Germany. Yes, he's in Frankfurt, Germany. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, I can tell you where he's at, but uh, we uh, uh, we found him, you know, I, and it was really funny because, you know, like, uh, they, they said we were looking for him for six months, and I'm like, really? I found him in three days, and I don't speak a word of German. I knew Vermitz the Nessen, and that was it, missing nephew, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for, a, you know, a guy with all these tattoos on that doesn't, he doesn't even speak German. <laughs> so... But yeah, I, I could talk all day about the mental health issues, but that's why I got, I did my doctorate work in psychology. Criminal justice has got to get that component right. They've got to get the mental health issue right. And I think that comes into police reform. It should have been, because I lived through the Ferguson riots. My husband, uh, my former husband, it was a um, Ferguson native. 
And we were there when the riots happened in Ferguson when uh, Mike Brown was shot. Mm. I was teaching criminal justice at a, a 100% African-American school. And um, I'm uh, Caucasian myself, but I grew up around that, that neighborhood. My husband is, was from there. He was also Caucasian. And so we felt like that was our home. And then to see what, you know, and we were hoping after Ferguson that things would change and there was some reform. And then it seemed like it did a whole 180. <laughs> it wow. went back to before Ferguson. So do you feel that police reform um, would definitely help? And then also, aside from the police reform, educating the public, um, whether it be educating them about the police and the police department, uh, expectations and things like that, or what do you think is the best approach? I this is it's a you know it's a very cute double-edged sword because you can say, well, what can we reform? Well, we were going to do reform with Mike Brown. We were going to do reform with Orlando Castillo. What, what, where is this? Where are we dropping the ball at? Why? Are, because you know the um, you know uh, there, there needs to be reform and. and and the public needs to understand how can people police themselves if there is no, if there are no police, how do we police ourselves? And if you want to, because people want to defund the police department, they want to abolish it. Okay. Then how do you, you have these people who are ingrained in, you know, my specialty is sexual assault. Okay. And that includes pedophilia and other things. And I did a lot, I've, you know, I've dedicated most of my adult life on researching that. And, and the causes and, and things and the treatments and stuff. When someone uh, initially thinks that that is their sexual preference to molest a child, how do we, how, how do we, how do those people get policed? Yeah. So if you're going to defund the police, who's going to deal with these people, the mental health professionals? Because they're already doing that when they go to jail, right? They have to go to sex offender, uh, sex offender treatment. So, so that's one thing we have to ask ourselves. If we're going to defund the police, what about those people? Those there's not a society on this earth that really condones sexual assault towards children. Think about it. And you're, you're going to ask these people to police themselves when they really ingrained think that this is their sexual, their, their sexual um, orientation. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a controversial thing, but it's the truth. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to many people who've committed sex crimes against children and, uh, you know, having a psychology background, I'm very fascinated with them, and I'm thinking, hmm, how how would this work if they if there there are there is no line of control against them and our children? I I don't know. I mean, I want to reform. I I don't know how it's going to yeah. to uh, how that's going to look for every state because every state is different. So, yeah. I mean, Sean, what are your thoughts on the yeah. mental health part? Yeah, uh, I I I think. I think when you mention it, it depends on which state. I, I think um, that's going to end up being really important because take right. it, for example, Washington prisons, where, you know, uh, Washington prisons, uh, you know, they're really big on cognitive behavior, you know, who, you know, have raped or, you know, murdered or, you know, viciously assaulted people. And, uh, and so, there's an investment in this treatment modality, but uh, you can throw a rock <laughs> and hit, you know, pretty much any other state around us, and you're not going to find the same commitment to that. Exactly. And, 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 but, I mean, I just 
having been a mental health professional for <laughs> a long time myself, I, you know, uh, especially when you're dealing with, you know, criminals, I, they're going to have to really make a huge commitment for you to have any kind of success in treating someone mm-hmm. uh, you know, who's not just a psychopath, but a sociopath, which for those of you who don't know, sociopath is much worse than a psychopath. We are surrounded by psychopaths. American society is a sea of psychopaths, I would argue. Uh, the world specialist lives in Vancouver, wrote a great book. Uh, I won't really deep dive into this topic too much. I really love this topic, but um, I think it's underdiagnosed. I think that um, our, our treatment methods need to evolve. Uh, I think society needs to understand what a threat this is. And and really, when I hear, Betty, when I hear you talking about how prisons are asylums, I agree. That was my first reaction. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And and so what we're really looking at is this much larger kind of multi-systemic issue because we can do police reform and it can be federally mandated. Uh, my hope is that that looks like a, a lot of money is freed up for additional training. And in my opinion that's where we can plug a lot of gaps and, you know, we can mandate training requirements. But what it sounds like to me from the two, what the two of you are saying is that with mental health and everything, currently it's all, it's state controlled. It sounds like that it could work or it should go to federal, be federally controlled. But then you have a lot of people saying that you're giving up our rights per state or our right uh, locally. So, I mean, before we really move on, this is a heavy topic right here that we're on. Um, really, sure. so what? what is the right thing to do? State? Federal? What's better? What's worse? Well, then you're, that, I think it comes back to who's got the control of these states. Because the states, you have different people with different cultures that live in the states. If my sister would have committed the crime that she did, given her mental health issues and the, the boxes, and I'm talking literally banker boxes of medical records that we had and the abuse, there was an abuse allegation on her husband at the time that this happened. And the 13 years that she lived in hell uh, uh, with this abuser, if she would have committed this, uh, this in the state of Washington, she would have went into some type of help and got reformed. But in the state of Missouri, she's sitting in a, in a jail cell not knowing where she's at half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think this is a topic that's very near and dear to me, especially, you know, I've cried many nights knowing that I know what goes on in prisons. I work cases in prisons as a, as a cop. You know, I've, had, I've got called into prison rapes. I got called into, especially being a sex crimes investigator, there's that, a lot of that goes on. And sometimes they call for the outside agency. They don't do it internally to do it. So, and to think of her, uh, the vulnerability of her in that jail cell and not being able to defend herself. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's something, but I think that we need to really, and I think people are understanding it now since we've had this quarantine and we've all have been in a lockdown and how the taxing that is on everybody's mental health. I think that we understand that mental health plays a big component in our life. Mm-hmm. It's not just the fruit from, you know, when I was growing up in Missouri, nobody talked about mental health. I addressed this in my book and I, I, I talked to my boyfriend and I, um, the Pacific Northwesterner, and he, you know, they, they didn't talk about it either. <laughs> but uh, in Missouri, we we didn't even, uh, growing up in rural Missouri, right on the Arkansas border, 
there was no mental health issue. And, and you just, it was just, you know, you, you just get up and clean yourself up and just keep going. That is the way it was. And um, my, my, my sister, the one that's in prison right now, had uh, oppositional defiance uh, disorder. And the schools didn't know how to deal with her because at that time they weren't addressing that. So it started a system of abuse. You know, she was abused by the, you know, she would get corporal punishment at school. And mom would get mad because she was getting in trouble at school, so she'd get uh, spanked at home. And then she ended up in the criminal justice system as an adult because she didn't know how to control her, 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 uh, her behaviors. And Sean, you've seen this numerous times where uh, ODD is, has done this for people. They end up in the criminal justice system, and then now they're their problem. Oh, and don't forget there's an, uh, well, I mean, I, I try to educate people a lot of times on, you know, different disorders and then the personality disorder component, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, teens don't get treated effectively. And when we have, you know, these incarceration systems and, and I would lump in juvenile detention with adult detention and, and, and juvenile detention is only marginally better than adult prisons because they do these group you know, uh, like ART, anger retraining therapy. And mm-hmm. I've talked to so many kids who have done it and they all, well, 99% of them think it's a joke. And and it's hard to hear that because I, I know there's a lot of well-intended people who run these programs in detention. And, um, you know, I, I just think a more comprehensive approach needs to be taken uh to treat people with the minor offenses, we need to change our, the way that we approach criminal cases with teenagers, I think, and with adults to, to you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe mandating this stuff so that we can at least ensure in some way that people get mental health care or at least get that assessment early on so that we can, you know, get those uh, assessments in their file so that when a judge is sitting before a kid who's been there 15, 20 times, has a bunch of points, mm-hmm. and is getting ready to uh, be uh, written up, and he has enough points to go to basically child prison to a couple of facilities uh, here in the state, um, I think we miss a lot of opportunities to prevent that. And so you can take that same kind of mental map or projector overhead sheet uh, and kind of put juxtapose that onto the adult system as well. And I think I think we wait too long in the same way kind of that, you know, married couples wait too long to seek treatment. I, I think that we we have those progressive consequences, right? And but we don't try to treat problems early because we don't want to be too heavy handed too soon. But we're missing a lot of opportunities. And well, and then, and then with Chuck asking is what how it fixes. I think one thing that we really need to do is stop mental health stigmatism. Stop being, having that stigma of mental health because, you know, I, I know especially where I was at in the rural uh, southeast Missouri, you know, it was such a stigma to go get help. And you know what? I, I, I'm not ashamed to say, I, I, and it's not just for the offenders, but actually people who are in law enforcement, who are in the criminal justice system. You know, if I had a guy that, when I was chief of police, if one of my officers showed up and they were pissed, oh, I'm sorry, except, uh, mad at everybody at home, and they were angry when they showed up, I would say, get your stuff and go home. 
because I don't need you out there with a loaded gun showing yourself and, and hurting somebody. You're a liability to me. You're a liability to the city and you're a liability to the public. Go home. Because I couldn't have them out there. You know, that was, that's, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. But how many people do that? I have a small enough department. I could do that. But when you have a big department and has a big roll call and this guy's just sitting back there, he's stewing and you're too busy worrying about, okay, well, we got to look at do this property check. We got to do this. We got to look up this. We got to go check this business. We got to go look for this guy. We got to get this racist. And then they're not looking at their offices and seeing that this guy is just screwing. He's just looking for a problem or this gal. Cause I've worked with ladies there same way. Doesn't matter. And, um, but that's another thing. Okay, it's okay. You're not. It's to go get help. It's not uh, go get help if you're not. You can't deal with stuff. It's all right. But so many times, people, especially in the Midwest where I was at, it's, it was seen as a, as, a, as a failure, a personal failure. And we got to stop that. We got to. So a lot, a lot of cops are ex-military, right? Exactly. So there's your problem. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, how much you know about military culture, but like, you know, I. A lot of a lot of active military people uh, and retired, you know, still call PTSD delayed stress, right? And right. you go get counseling. You're seen as weak, and so right. that's going to be a really difficult culture shift because those are the guys that are coming out and becoming cops, uh, largely. And then you've asked about the training, too. You go back to that issue, because I've been in SWAT team training with these guys in the military. A lot of them come, you know, I, I'm just an old Missouri country girl. I grew up, had a gun before she had a Barbie doll. So I was trying to know how to shoot. So I, um, I would go on, and when I was on SWAT team, I'd be with these guys, but which training kicks in? Because military has carte blanche to, um, when they're going into a war zone to, to say, you know, to say, okay, you don't have any civil rights. <laughs> you, you don't have to say it, but which training takes over? That's another thing we need to address, too. Mm. And that goes back to what you're saying. I mean, wh which training imprint do you get? Do you get that first one or do you get the other one? Because you come out from military police or you come out from military. Which one do you get as a training imprint? So as a basic, That's what you're saying thing. for the imprint, you're, you're really saying that with police training, it's ask questions first, shoot later, should be. Or do you take the right. military where you it shoot is. first, ask questions later? Exactly. So, and that's sometimes that can get confusing. I mean, if you're in a fight or flight situation and that takes over, what are you going to do? Are you going to resort back to the first train? I don't know what happened, but the call drops for everybody. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it was such a heated discussion. Somebody, someplace, the, gov the <laughs> yeah, government, the yeah, government is listening. Turning the tape over. Yeah, that's right. They're turning the tape over is what it was. Yep. That's what they used to say. As, as, soon, as soon as we got to that point where we're saying, do you take over the military training or police? They're like, we better cut this one right now. So, yeah, and then she needs to go back to Missouri and quit talking. <laughs> but yeah, like you were saying, Betty, it, it's it's one of those situations where it's a fight or flight. What takes over first? That first training does that become instinct, or do you even have exactly. a, a, a moment of uh, do you have a moment of clarity to go? No, I'm here on the streets. Do the other because I can see where you know as an outsider, I would think well they should know, but the way you're putting it, no. It's not that they, meaning the police department, police should know. It's um, it sounds like it's all that mental health, mental state of mind, uh, what you're like that day, and also um, almost like retraining. 
if you're coming out of the military, yeah. MP or yeah. whatever it might be, yeah. you come back yeah. into the civilian life, you should go through some sort of, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, not a, not, not desensitizing, not, um, well, we don't want to retrain the entire mind, but yeah, go back through and be properly trained for it's civilian life. It's a in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and just let's get that conversation started in the police academy. Let's do that. Say, listen, right. you know, you understand this and be aware of it. It, it, it can happen. You know, that's what this goes because, you know, I grew up in a very violent, low-income area. So, and I had a very violent home that I grew up in. So I came from a different place in, the, in policing and being a female as well. Um, I came a, t- a totally different place because I, my mom's best friend was African-American. I grew up in a low income area with a lot of African-Americans, few whites. And then I married a man that was from Ferguson, which uh, if you guys, if you don't know, the Ferguson Jennings area in Missouri is predominantly African-American. So my husband and I both felt more comfortable around that culture and um, people who have never been with that culture and don't understand policing that culture. They, it's, I, I, it's a, it's a shock to them, you know, and I can tell you, um, if you don't know how to police a culture, you, even, even with sensitivity or diversity training, it still is difficult. If you, if you don't know the, some of the innuendos, like I can give an example of, I had a guy one night call me and say, Oh, Betty, we're going to take this child into custody. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I'll be there in a minute. Cause in the state of Missouri, police officers can take children away. They don't have to have, um, you know, their version of CPS, which is family services. And so I, I went over there and the child had a small burn in her hair. Well, back in the day, back when I was younger, <laughs> a younger officer, um, there wasn't flat irons weren't accessible. A lot of people heated uh, hot combs on the stove and used that to straighten hair. Mm-hmm. And the child had gotten a small burn from that hot comb because it was, the child was wiggling and stuff. The guy was more mad at mom and wanted to stick it to mom is what it seemed like to me. And I said, we're not taking this child into custody. This is a culturally appropriate thing that has happened, and and this happens all the time. I've seen it a million times growing up. I knew girls that come to school, their hair, you know, scalp burnt because of the, the hot comb. And he go, and I go, are you angry at this at this child being the small burn? Or are you angry at this mother who wouldn't comply to you because you asked her for something? And he had to stop and think. I said, oh, exactly. You have to stop and think about this. Okay, if we take this child into custody, this child goes into foster care, there's potential for abuse if we can't find a relative. And then the mother goes to jail. The mother doesn't have money hardly to, for anything anyway because it's a low-income area. I, I know I grew up in that area. So what do we do? What, what are we, what are we going to do? Are we doing better? Are we bettering the good by taking this child into custody? And I finally talked him into like, seeing that this was not the right thing and that it was really – he was more mad at the, the mom getting – angry at him because she probably has had bad, uh, bad experiences with police than it was mm. the child being burned yeah, and not knowing the culturally appropriate thing. So that's, that's another issue that, you know, that, that, that people run into. You know, speaking of the culturally uh, knowing the culture. So I hear oftentimes that police, police men, police women, they go from one state to the next. Uh, so you might be from the West coast and you're going to go to the Midwest where it's going to be completely different um totally and and there's no (laughs) yeah yeah. um so are there any considerations into uh training these officers that come from a different location i mean sean you would probably know something about this too dealing with uh 
you know, children, families move from one area to the next. They might have a different culture. They might be doing something else. A neighbor sees this child, something happened to them. They call CPS and you, uh, they come to you and they say, no, 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 no. This is what we do in our culture. I mean, for- yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've received quite an education doing this job, you know, in situations like that. So uh, as far as the police go, um, it, it sounds like to me that it would be uh, a good training, uh, especially if somebody's coming from, again, Midwest to the West Coast, West Coast to the East Coast, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, uh, you have to do a lateral entry, so it depends on if uh, they'll even take your, your police training. Some states will, some states won't. They'll make you go right back to their police academy. And um, so if you can do lateral, it means you can. you got to do some qualifications. you got to do their laws. And um, and then see if you get hired, or some places make you get hired on there, and then they make you go back through a police academy. It, it depends. It's it's not just like you just can take your police license from one state to the next. Okay. Good. When I moved from Missouri out to here, I had to was I had to take I would have to take a lot of classes. So uh, it's a lot different than you know. And I was a class A officer in Missouri, which means that I had the highest that you could go. At this point, we continue the conversation with Betty and ask why she got into education. I was injured on duty. I was actually hit by a truck uh, directing traffic. So I, uh, it was a job-related injury. Uh, the a guy wasn't paying attention and hit me when we opened up traffic after an accident. Um, I have such a passion for criminal justice because uh, it's, you know, I, I see my family get so, um, uh, I, well, it wouldn't say abused, but I can see that my family has uh, has had a lot of problems with the criminal justice system. And Police things just was in my blood. I, I liked it. I, I liked being able to go out and help people and to, to solve problems and to, and, and just, you know, that, that was the thing I liked about it. That's why I was drawn to it. But then in teaching, I wanted to show, because I come from such a low income, low, um, uh, high poverty area that you can get in there and you can, and when I was teaching them in St. Louis, I would show the kids, okay, who do you want to police your neighborhoods? Do you want them to be, this person, or do you want them to be your you who knows the area? So I, I would really look for those and try to use my passion to get those kids that maybe didn't even think about criminal justice to do that. And in turn, of my students, since I've been teaching since 2009, have um, I've gotten two police officers and three lawyers. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and in Missouri, and uh, some out here. So I'm I'm very proud of uh, of that because. We can you can you can do that, but how do you fix a system that's broken? You have to fix it from within. So you can sit out, you can yell and complain all you want, but how do you really fix it? You fix it from within. You go in like I changed my policing culture in my city when I was a teach. Uh, I was a chief because you know I had an open door policy to come in if you had a complaint with my office. I want to know what it is. You know, and that it can, it can, but. If you're not going to want to go out and police or want to learn how to do the criminal justice system, then you can't change it. Uh, one of my lawyers I'm very proud of that was my student, he had never even thought about the criminal justice system until he took my class. And he was like, oh, my gosh, you're, you're, this, I, this could help. Because it did it help me with my sister's case, you know, knowing the insides of how it worked and how it, 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 the, the court system worked. Even though her case was not done to where we would we would have liked if she didn't get the sentence, obviously that we would have liked. But in the state of Missouri, there's only five mental health courts, but there's over three thousand drug courts. Wow! Wow! 
so there's uh, five mental health and none of them are nowhere near southeast Missouri. They're in the bigger metropolitan areas in San Luis. Even though the Vera Project now, as I spoke at the Rural Criminal Justice Summit about a year ago, and the Vera Project, which does all the uh, stats for criminal justice, said that the newest inmates in Missouri prisons were from the rural areas, not from St. Louis, not from Kansas City. They were from the rural areas where my sister was from, but there's no mental health courts in those rural areas. Yeah, and we're right back to the mental health situation where it's so badly needed to be, forgive me for maybe using the wrong word, but it needs to be changed, reformed. Something needs to be done. And it's a a long-standing problem, too. It's not like it just fell out of the sky. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of going to be on topic about this with mental health, and maybe I'm going to just throw a little kink in here. Uh, You know... Mental health, and you hear a lot of lot of kids, uh, adults as well, on medication. And you often hear that they go to the doctor, and the doctor gives them medication. Then you talk to the kids, and they say, I always feel so tired, or I feel like I'm not connected to anything or anyone when I'm on these meds, but I have to be on them. What do you say to that? I mean, I still, I've, I've heard it for years and years and years from people, and I still hear it. I mean, Sean, do you want to address? Uh, I, I've I've actually uh, been involved in a lot of pediatric psychiatry over the years, and um, I think what I tend to see is that a lot of younger people try things, and 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 what they really fail to grasp is that. You know, what any good pediatric psychiatrist is going to do is they're going to prescribe meds when, you know, they think there's a problem and they're going to look up a medicine and they are going to start at a low dose. And this is just how it is. Uh, You don't want to over medicate anybody. Right. And so you need to see how it goes. You report back, they up your dose a little bit, uh, see how that goes. And then so on and so on. And you may end up changing meds once, twice, you know, in worst case scenarios, multiple times. Uh, Ideally, you only have maybe one medication change and you can get to a good dose and then you're stabilized. But it kind of depends on what's going on for you. I think ADHD is something that uh, as long as we have an accurate diagnosis, it can be uh, pretty ably treated. And we have ADHD treatment gurus like uh, Russell Barkley uh, working in concert uh, with the pharmaceutical industry who and uh, together they have some very tried and true techniques and research, you know, clearly demonstrates that you want to uh, go and get counseling and uh, make sure that you are managed with a uh, psychotropic medication prescriber to most effectively treat ADHD. But again, it's the same process. You're going to start on a med and you're going to start low and it's not going to be enough. And hopefully folks aren't so frustrated that they just stop taking out of frustration or that they don't like the way that a couple medicines make them feel. And then they swear off all psychotropic meds for the rest of their life. And then they have these ongoing uh, mental health problems that won't be treated because they have a belief because they tried a couple of meds and didn't see either one through 
to an effective dosage rate. So they never had treatment efficacy ever. And so the result is, you know, many adults I've talked to uh, had this happen when they were younger. And so they are highly avoidant of taking psych meds as a result as adults. And those, and, and I see them as people in uh, the correction system and people involved in CPS uh, in both arenas. And uh, mm-hmm. I would, and that's, with my nephew was like that, John. My nephew, when he was taking his, his meds for his schizophrenia, he didn't like that feeling. That wasn't normal to him. The 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 episodes he was having went off the meds was normal. So he didn't like the normal that that um, that the meds gave him. So mm-hmm. then he would uh, he would do things when he got off his meds, like um, you know he went in and started drinking beer out of a cooler one day at a at a convenience store. And then said that, you know, these people were telling him to do it. <laughs> and, um, and then you said their normal is not our normal or anyone else's normal. And then if they try to get to a, a normal that we, society would accept, they don't want it. Which leads to, you know, a grown woman standing in her driveway screaming at her neighbors that aliens have put listening devices in her children's ears. Yeah. And... And those are the kinds of realities that, you know, uh, you know, I know I've had to deal with and, you know, uh, a very wide range of maladaptive behaviors as a result. And it's all mental health driven. And I, I just, I wish things were further along in, uh, in the way that, uh, you know, mental health services were funded and that, you know, maybe we could have more uh, medication nurses or, um, you know, nurse practitioners that can work with families, you know, maybe more medical social workers in concert with nurses to explain the process much more effectively and to reach out more to, you know, maybe have a, a home visit nurse like like a WIC program or like a lot of um, you know, CPS programs are geared to provide in-home services where you could just check in and see how things are going and instead of allowing people to fall through the cracks mm-hmm. and just, you know, not treat their identified uh, mental health diagnoses. I, I just think, um, you know, with some populations, we need to work harder to make sure they don't fall through the cracks because it is important because those folks end up in the jails and prisons. And that's really why I hold that conviction. So I'm going to throw this in there. So we want to be able to uh, reach out to more people or have more people reach out to um, the medical field, doctors or whoever. So right now what they've been doing, you know, since the, uh, the COVID situation is, is a lot of hospitals, um, walking clinics have uh, started up the, their little apps here call in here and talk to a doctor over the phone or over, over your, over the app. Do you find, or do you think that would be helpful in a mental health uh, situation like this, where they actually have quick and easy access to someone? Uh, Perhaps, you know, it's not going to be somebody that um, can prescribe anything, but they can listen. Which is what these people all need. They need that person to listen, especially Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with, a difficult diagnosis that's difficult to treat. It's difficult to get the medicine and the level uh, 
know, the dosage correct uh, for, you know, for effective treatment. And I, I am all about being able to just, you know, Zoom chat or WebEx or whatever app you're going to use. I think that's been a long time coming. I think that we have dramatically underutilized technology in all state and federal agencies and programs. And uh, for example, we're still using fax technology all the time. And how old is that? I mean, real, I think like Amenhotep the fourth invented fax technology and Egyptian Pharaoh. I mean, it feels like it's that old to me, right? You know, I just, I think we need to get caught up with our technological capability and kind of modernize the way that we, we, we practice medicine and mental health and make sure that we're not, you know, uh, letting people fall through the cracks. I think we could have, uh, we could meet more often. We could meet for a shorter amount of time. We could make the work more effective, especially when it comes to psychotropic med management. Well, I imagine for you, Betty, especially, um, you know, of being in law enforcement, you probably saw a lot of people, uh, whatever crime that they may have committed. uh, I would imagine that a good percentage of them had a mental issue. Uh, oh, where, yeah. they, where they were off their meds <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely, or untreated. It was just, they, I mean, not untreated, but undiagnosed. Ah, okay, And yes. that's another situation where it's undiagnosed, and um, they go into, okay, uh, like my nephew, okay? I did not know he was schizophrenic. HIPAA prevented us from knowing anything. He didn't tell us. He didn't give that up to us. We didn't know how potentially dangerous he was to our family um, when, when after the, well, he was living with my sister and then this murder happened and she goes to jail. Her husband's deceased now. And so he's there. You know, HIPAA kept us from knowing anything. So here we were thinking we were, well, we were, we were unaware of that because of, you know, privacy. Well, I get that. Everybody needs to privacy laws, but, um, and so we brought him into our house, you know, and didn't know until I heard him talking in gibberish. I was upstairs reading some papers. My husband and my son were gone. I heard him talking in gibberish downstairs, fighting with this unknown person. And then, um, you know, I, I went down and see, and there was nobody there. He was fighting, and he's talking in pseudo language that, uh, that he it sounds is that he believes is German or Italian or something, and. Um, and so then we found, you know, and I, uh, I, you know, we helped him apply for social security and I said, what did the doctor tell you? And he didn't have to also, but he told me, oh, they said I got schizophrenia, but I don't believe I got that. I think that's just up in the face, disbelieve it. And, but he had actually been, after we, you know, after we went and got the court papers and everything, we found out that he had been diagnosed in his early twenties. Here he was in his thirties. He had kept that from us for over 10 years. Wow. So we had no idea. And and um, about the potential that he had and uh, of, of violence that he could have done or other harm to himself or others, and um, then when he disappeared and actually went to Europe, you know, we don't know how he got a passport. We don't know any of this stuff because he was living in 150 miles away from where we were living, and we were trying to get custody of him. And so it was. Um, it's, it's very, it's very. I mean, we we know what we went through with him, and then you know his mother on the other hand with some mental health issues. So uh, I, I can see what, as being a police officer, I would drive on scenes and these people would be with, with stuff that we were learning in you know, our police training, our very limited mental health training, very limited, I'm going to say that as well. Um, and, uh, and, and 
what are we going to do? We'll take them in for, in Missouri, you can take them in for 96-hour hold. You have to write up a, a probable cause statement. You have to have a judge sign it. But in 96 hours, they can decide if they want to come out or stay in. We had no control over that unless the judge said, okay, uh, they're a danger to themselves and others. Like my sister, she was held on a no, uh, no, uh, war- uh, no bond warrant for four years. Well, why she waited trial? Because wow. she was a danger to herself and others. Okay. Yeah, that's the one thing like I was saying earlier that uh, I, I'm not sure what the time limit is, or not a limit, but uh, in Washington State where person gets, whether they're arrested or they get hauled in, police take them to the hospital because they say this person is a danger to themselves and to the others. They sedate them. Three hours later, doctor comes in and says, are you going to hurt yourself? And they say, no. They say, okay. They leave. They come back a few more hours later. Are you sure you're not going to hurt yourself, anybody? Nope. Okay, you're good to go. And then they're right back out on the street. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly got to be seventy. Yeah, it's got to be frustrating. It's seventy-two hours in Washington State. Okay. Yeah, wow. it's got to be they, frustrating. They, yeah, it's called an, an involuntary treatment. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's more difficult out here because people have uh, their rights are more protected. And I, I know Washington State does probably doesn't believe that, but yes, they are. Go to the Midwest. <laughs> you will see. You will see. <laughs> you will see the difference. I can tell you uh, big time. But, um, it, you know, that 72 hours or 96 hours in Missouri, is that really enough, you know, to, to make a difference? Just so it's my, my nephew, like, you know, he could go for, for weeks without an episode. Yeah. So... <laughs> And like you said, some people can hide it for years, even if they have an episode, they'll hide it. Uh, He hid it for over 10 years. He kept a job. He paid his bills. He paid his rent. He did that. And then, yeah, he kept it hid very well from us. Was he med managed? Yes. He's taking his meds. That's why. And then he decided that he wasn't going to be on his meds anymore because they made him feel like, that you know that that wasn't normal, and and that's and that's the same story with a lot of people with different forms of bipolar too. Uh, that you know they feel like they don't need them anymore, and then you know whether you're schizophrenic or bipolar, your life falls apart. You know as soon as you go off your meds. And I would imagine too that there's a What's lot of dual diagnosis type people too. You know with uh, alcoholism yeah. and you're yeah, of dependent upon medication, whether it be prescribed or not. Dual diagnosis is very prevalent with a bipolar diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know the addiction and mental health component. Yeah, the- and then you get like my nephew self medicated with alcohol. So then you had that on top of schizophrenia. You know there's alcoholism with schizophrenia i mean it was it was just a recipe for disaster yeah that that is a definite recipe for disaster um like i said people people tend to self-medicate themselves and taking some of the medication you 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 say i don't feel right Uh, well that right is the normal for for us or for most people and Mm -hmm. so I, i would not have a clue as to where to begin to help people like that nor to how to deal with people like that being a police officer. So there's, I think you're alluding to the fact there needs to be a lot of training for police for mental health. So we've gone through learning about different culture and mental health, everything. So it's not easy being an officer. 
No, yeah. no, it's not. But it, it can be. It can be. I can get. It can be a honorable profession, and it should be. But you know, you get people with uh, in in Minneapolis. You know, this guy. He had so many other problems. With he had complaint after complaint after complaint. That's what I found in Missouri. Uh, St. Louis University did an excellent study a few years ago when I was teaching there about uh, the muni shufflers, which means these people who get into trouble in one municipality, the chief will write them a letter of recommendation to get rid of the problem, get rid of the liability. And then they'll go to another municipality and just keep, keep it up, keep going, uh, keep up the same problems that they had. Now, I don't know if that's the same issue that this guy in Minneapolis, or if he, but he had several complaints in Minneapolis, the one with the George Floyd um, incident. So I don't know, but, um, if that's what happened there, but that that was what was happening in Missouri because they were so reluctant to take away these licenses. There still are to take away licenses of officers that, that do bad, that the good ones end up leaving because they have to deal with these bad officers because you're supposed to be a United force. Police are paramilitary organizations. So you do the chain of command. And if you've got some guy that has luckily got through the system, fell through the cracks, and he gets to be your corporal or your sergeant or your lieutenant, and he tells you to do this unethical thing, you have a choice to either do the unethical thing or to walk away. And that's how we lose good officers. So I'm glad you brought that up because the one thing that I wonder is sometimes, and, and I'm thinking that you're talking about Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, um, but you see sometimes where there's good cop, bad cop, for real good cop, bad cop. You see mm-hmm. one that's being bad or doing something that you you don't think should be done where the other officers just kind of stand back and don't say or don't do. Is that, uh, forgive me for being ignorant, is that a like a brotherhood type of thing? Um, don't rat on your fellow officer kind of deal? Or is it, like you said, the oh. hierarchy type of thing? Or is it all of the above? It is. It's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. And, you know, um, me, because I'm, I'm Southern and don't know my place to begin with. <laughs> so when I was on a scene, I, I would be like, you know, that ain't right. Because I was one of those people. I grew up in a low, high income, a low income, high poverty area. So I knew. Like, um, I, just, I just did a story about my mom's best friend who was African-American. And she... Um, was uh, one of the first times I ever heard the N-word from an adult man was a police officer that called her that. And um, after she was a victim of a crime. <laughs> and I ran into that police officer years later, and he get, did a training. And I was like, oh, man, I was sitting there just livid the whole time. And he'd asked me, you know, what did you learn? I said, I didn't learn anything from you. I learned a lot from my godmother. And that was the woman that he wouldn't take the report from. And so, but anyway, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a police cultural issue. When I talk about culture, that's a culture. You don't, you don't like snitch on other, because uh, you're supposed to be a united force, like military, right? You're mm-hmm. supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to be a united front. And that's what's always hard uh, for people to say stuff. You know, I, I guess I was a rarity because I was always calling out stuff because I, I, you know, I don't know my place being a Southern woman. So, uh, <laughs> and I, and so I would always do that, uh, but other people don't and they would, they just bunch themselves in. So how do we correct that? Well, there should be a, an easier way to come to the chain of command. But if your chain of command has it, the police uh, hierarchy sets the culture, just like in any organization. If they can't set the culture to, and, and we don't have those systems, okay, okay, this is the standard that we want our police to be. 
And if you're going to do this, then, you know, because I was an, I was a, an appointed chief. A lot of chiefs in, in my state where I come from are elected. So they have even more power and it's even harder to get rid of uh, a bad elected official. So I think it comes down to the, to the areas and what there are their standards and what is your state? Because uh, a lot of states don't have a, a post, which is a police officer standard training. And even if they do, it's hard for them to take away the licensing of these officers, even though there's been numerous complaints. Hmm. Well, hmm. You know, not knowing you, but hearing you, listening to you today, seeing some of the other female officers, chiefs, it almost sounds like I would rather have a female um I hope nobody gets after me, but I would rather have, I, I believe, a female commander in, in, in charge of the police department, a chief, a sheriff. Uh, that's my dream is to go back to Missouri and run for sheriff. And uh, Sean's going to come help me set up a mental health board, I think. <laughs> uh, but um, awesome. when I retire. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I think I've seen some really excellent male officers. I think it's just that you, uh, it depends on where you what your what your background is, and a lot of times, people like myself who are from high uh, crime areas and from families that don't have the greatest things get passed over because there's almost a discrimination, discriminatory a- application process. They ask you, has your stepbrothers or step anybody in your family ever been arrested? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to tell you, and this is how it is <laughs> because you can't base that on that because you know I come from a family of criminals. I can tell you there is a murderer, two murderers every generation in my family that I was able to articulate. And I had, you know, enough character references to say, all right, she can, because I did work with the FBI when I was a deputy. I was assigned to an FBI agent. So I, they went back all the way to kindergarten on me. So they knew all the skeletons in my closet, which I don't care. I, I wrote a whole book. I don't care. You can do, uh, my, <laughs> my life is literally an open book. So, um, but uh, if you need people from these unique backgrounds like myself, which I came from this, you know, all these girls, but I was thrown into the church early and I was thrown into Girl Scouts early and I had all these teachers. My fourth grade teacher took me under her wing and her husband was was a Missouri representative and they are still in my life. They were just here in Bothell having dinner with me and not too long ago. But we need to, and that's one thing that everybody can work on. Teachers like Miss Kingery, which I, she was a godsend picked me out and said, hey, you know, I see something in her. And she set me on the right path and helped me. You know, that's that's something that teachers can do. We can help these kids that come in these only because they make the best police. The, the best police come from the worst backgrounds. I can tell you that right now because they know criminal behavior. Uh, uh-huh. That's yeah, my, I, I that's my that. personal thing. So, yeah. Sounds like to me, too, a lot of people need to start, a lot of the good people need to start mentoring, helping others. Yes. So kind of like I think you were saying. When I, when I was growing up, with the, the neighborhood raised you. I, I think it's a culture that's lost a lot of times, like because of we have so many, you know, things. Wrong. But, you know, I knew that I could go to Miss Wright's house if I needed something, or I knew that I could go to Miss Laramie's house if I needed something, or across the street to Miss Chapman's. I knew I had this network. I mean, like Miss Wright showed me how to garden, you know, but we don't have that anymore. We're all so secluded. Especially in COVID nineteen now. Yeah, this is but scary. But I grew up in the south too. Yeah, that, yeah. well, yeah. this is scary too. What you're saying because, Sean, what do you think? I, I mean, 
we, we're we're separated because of technology as well. Because now a lot of the kids, you know, they don't go talk to their neighbor. They don't go ask. What do they do? They type it into their mini computers that they use as phones as well. Or, you know, they uh, it's that makes me cringe. Yeah, I don't you know, want to I, use any I, names, but yeah. You know, humans are social animals, and we need to interact with each other, and especially in children. I think it's really important because children interacting learn social hierarchy. They learn how it's okay to behave just as well as they learn how not to behave. They learn social norms. They learn social mores. I think, you know, that's how culture is established, you know, and even children, you know, are smart enough to understand, you know, they see somebody acting a certain way, um, I'm telling, you know, because, you know, even a six or, you know, five, six-year-old has a fairly developed sense of justice by that. And so school-age kids, you know, they train each other up. And, you know, hopefully we can instill, you know, a good sense of right and wrong and that sense of community to make good adults, good parents, uh, to be good husbands and wives and raise good families. I think the more isolated people are, I think just the more innately selfish and self-oriented they become. And I think that's really simple math. Yeah, you know, it's scary, though, Sean, is today I heard a report where they said that uh, your brain does not fully develop until the age of 25. 25. More true for for guys. Uh, Yeah, I have a 25-year-old that's not developed all the way, so (laughs) I would argue with that. (laughs) You know, they they say that, uh, you know, female brains develop a little fuller, but by, you know, middle adulthood, generally, the male brains, you know, pretty well developed. Um, but, you know, adolescence is, you know, the, the big problem in brain development because you're just making bad decisions and your impulse controls out the window. And, you know, that's where the real problem is. Yeah. And that's what they're talking that's about. That's that fork in the road for criminal behavior too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's where, you know, like I was saying, you know, I came from this, this really, um, high crime area. And by the time we got into, to, um, eighth grade, I had lost everybody. There was only three of us that made it out of my, my elementary school that wasn't pregnant or wasn't in jail. By the time we were in eighth grade, only three of us. And I, uh, I, by the time we got to high school, the three of us made it through. That was it. That was just three of us because we had, well, there was, I think there was, there was another girl too, but she was a little bit in another grade. But there was all, those were the only people I had from my childhood that made it to high school with me. Wow, that oh is just this, yeah. This is really sad. It's, it's, yeah, but I had good mentors. I had I had this teacher that this, she kept with me till I got to junior high, and then her husband was a junior high teacher, and he kept with me all the way. And then they both just you know co-teach, taught me through high school. And I had really good. I had these, but that was the community getting involved with kids, kids like me. That I should be a statistic. I should be uh, in prison as well. But I had people in the community that saw something in me and said, no, we're not going to let this happen. And they're still in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. But there is still time for you, Betty. I, I think maybe. <laughs> I don't know. My son yeah. would disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah if, you, if you get into politics, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, I, you know, I think you, you, you've hit a... An important note, I think that we, there's not enough mentoring 
just within standard American culture. I think we see it in the trades, but I don't think we see it in, enough in the professions. Uh, I, I, I think it's really lacking in the professions. Uh, you know, to be, you know, to be assigned one, if not two mentors, you know, maybe divvy up the responsibility for new people. Uh, I think it would make for more skilled new people. Uh, they'd get on board, they'd learn their jobs faster, arguably more competently. And, uh, and hopefully that would result in higher rates of retention. Well, and, and can we just as individuals do like Miss Kingery did me and just see something in, in these kids, keep our eyes open for these kids that should fall through the cracks? Because I'm the youngest of eight, and of, of mine, there's only two, me and another sister that have not been arrested. I have eight kids, and the, but this teacher saw something in me, you know? I think it's really, this is just my personal opinion, um, if we're going with teachers and or others seeing something in a child. And as you were saying, Sean, it's kind of a rarity now. We're back, say, when we were growing up, I think we're probably all relatively close in age. Uh, teachers did take an interest in yeah. their students or some oh, yeah. of their students. I, I, I just sent a letter to, he wasn't even my teacher, but he was a really cool teacher. And that was... Geez, do I even say it? Almost 50 years ago? Like 45 years ago? And I send them a letter, card, a few times a year. It's because, well, like I said, I never had them as a teacher, but I saw this particular teacher reaching out to different students, always there for them. And I thought, wow, that is a really cool teacher. Not a good, but I thought he was really cool, and he's probably a really good teacher as well. But, you know, it it left an impression on me. And there are other teachers like that. Um, thank goodness for Facebook. You know, one teacher, my third-grade teacher mm-hmm. sought me out. And every once in a while, oh. we'll have these little conversations. So I don't, th- I don't know if it's like that. People are so uh, either protective of their privacy um, or fear that, you know, any – conversation with their students now or later um, might be looked at as bad behavior or something. I don't know, but I wish. Yeah. It was like and that's it why was. we live in a litigious society. Yeah. We live in such a litigious society where everybody wants to sue for the job of a hat. Mm-hmm. And that's, 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 that might be part of the situation, but. Yeah. I think what we've been touching base on is just how complex this issue really is. And you get a few thinkers on the phone together and we start identifying, you know, how, how deep this rabbit hole really goes. And I think the media is just really skimming the surface in my opinion. (laughs) Oh, don't go into the media. Oh boy. (laughs) We could probably go for another couple hours. It's tough not to. I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, uh, you know, they they have an important responsibility to provide information, but when, you know, uh, I yeah. mean, we could take this so many different directions right now. Um, I I don't feel like, you know, they're talking about, you know, what do we have? Let's have a serious conversation about police training. Let's have a serious conversation about the different cultures across the country. Let's have a serious conversation about, uh, you know, off 
officer experience and what we can do with academy training. I just feel like it's, it's this blanket statement that ends up just being about campaigning for the presidential election. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the way that it feels. Now, I know that Black Lives Matter is a pretty well-organized super PAC, and they have some clear goals, but I don't see the media reporting on them. They had a manifesto uh, that was uh, that was done during Ferguson, and I don't I don't I haven't seen that anywhere. I uh, yeah I mean mm-hmm. I I would have to do a search for it because you know the media is not presenting it to us. Yeah, they had uh, an actual manifesto. I even went to the Black Lives Matter website and I don't think I saw it. Um. If you look, you can you can try to find it's it's, it's still in there. It's a ten point manifesto that they did, and it was back uh, when the uh, Aaron Ferguson era, and it's called it's a ten point manifesto. You know, with the media and everything, it, do you find it sometime at, when you were uh, in law enforcement, where could the media be a hindrance? Yes. to the law enforcement. Yeah, and they 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 can be. Um, like I, I I'm a sex crimes investigator. That's what I specialized in. They um, said, well, this this man was arrested for raping his wife. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out who his wife is and who my rape victim is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come on, media. And so the, there are rape shield laws to protect victims from from that kind of a thing. But still, that's already out there. Even if they did get a fine, they're going to know who my rape victim was. And, uh, or they, um, uh, there was some talk from some of my students. I, I don't know the validity of it, but when, when we were at the Ferguson unrest, they said that someone uh, set the Mike Brown uh, memorial on fire. And a lot of people believed it was a, a member of the news media because it was a slow news day. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if that is true or not, but uh, several people believe that. And then, uh, you know, it just what what comes out in the news media regarding an incident. And you know, they want everything; they want it that quickly. But sometimes we got to understand, like in my case, like my rape victim, they wanted to know why. That, okay, there was a rape; but it was a big deal. This guy, but then to put, you know, this how, how they put it in there, they didn't even think when they proofed that. Of, that they were tipping off that whose whose rights were they violating? Yeah. Well, this guy, you know, arresting the public record, but this poor rape victim didn't have well, her rights violated. I mean, she had enough to deal with. This was, you know, a, a husband that broke into her house. Yeah. So I see them. They they would perpetrate a lot. Um, like uh, when they would try to come into the school and talk to my students, because I, I, I taught for a school that was specifically for law and, and, and justice uh, in that area during the Ferguson unrest. And um, they would just like try to ask baited questions to the students. So I would tell the students, okay, think about your choices before, you know, you say things. If it's from the heart, it's from the heart. But if they're trying to bait you into to some discussion that you don't feel comfortable with then say because they would they would get these young kids and they say well this young black male from ferguson missouri said this during the unrest and you know he's going to this justice school and you know it was it was awful uh, you know so i've seen it both ways i thought it's going to help us and then not 
I can also see where sometimes with um, with the general public, uh, if you're working on some sort of crime or whatever it might be, or even the the victims or the family members of victims, they want an answer now. And you may not be able to give an answer now, but they're demanding an answer. And then sometimes it seems like uh, maybe, like you said, with the um, media, they'll give their own theory behind something, even though they're not supposed to. Do you, do you ever find yeah. something like that where where people are wanting an answer and they want it now, but the police department's like, no, we have to do our due diligence, but the people are saying we want something now. Then all of a sudden the paper says, oh, yeah, this is what's this is what is happening. And then it makes people think, oh, they have found XYZ person that did it. And then it becomes more and more difficult later to prove a case. Does that something yeah, so like that happen? They can, or they can start talking to the people around the, the incident that happened, and then they, um, they, they can ruin a case. So, I mean, I've seen them help. I've seen them hinder things. And, um, but, you know, there are, if, if police are acting in an ethical manner and being as transparent as they can at the time of an investigation, then that's, that's, we should understand that. But they have to be as transparent as they can and then give a reason why they're not being transparent. But sometimes people, uh, police agencies want to hold their little kingdoms to themselves. That's what happens a lot. And I would find that because I was a deputy, but I was assigned to the FBI. So I would go out and help the FBI who had federal jurisdiction. Um, and then, you know, in my County. So, and I had the, you know, I, of the whole County, but then I would find that these municipalities didn't want to work like child pornography cases was because they wanted their piece of the kingdom. They didn't want uh, the feds or the, the county officers to come in. That's another thing in police culture. People don't understand that these, um, these, these units want to stay their unit because they don't want, they want to investigate themselves. Okay. We showed up on a scene and we investigated ourselves and nothing wrong happened. <laughs> you need an objective observer. <laughs> You need an objective observer to say, hey, that, but I, that's what happens a lot. And as information's not shared, I mean, here in the Pacific Northwest, we've seen that happen with a lot of serial killer cases where if these agencies were talking, that they would have shut it down a lot sooner. Um, but that's, that's another part of police culture that happens um, where that people don't want to give up their little piece of the, of the pie. So forgive me for saying this to all the law enforcement people out there. I guess it is true what they show in the movies. Some of it. I I get mad. I can't watch police shows because I know what really happens. I'm like, no, this would never happen. (laughs) That's got to really get so mad at me. It does because, you know, where I come from, it's a whole totally different thing than out here. Because in Missouri, you have the right to ask everybody in the car for a driver's license or identification. Where out here, they can only ask the driver unless the passenger's doing something illegal. We don't want that. Totally different. That is. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We sure do give an awful lot of rights to to people in general than in the Pacific Northwest. Meaning that, like you said, especially it's, you know. Yeah, he's driving, but I got the dope. So don't ask me for anything. Talk to the driver, and the driver's safe and clean. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't happen in Missouri. Sorry. The, yeah, nope, nope. <laughs> Missouri, everybody's getting asked. <laughs> yeah, everybody's getting asked. So, yeah. But it's a different, you know, it's a different culture. It's a different area. And so, 
but I, you know, uh, when I moved out here, I, I think I even told Sean, I said, Sean, I, 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 people don't understand the rights that they have out here. <laughs> totally different. And I would imagine, Sean, no, you probably you probably hear this, Sean, that a lot of people in this area complain that they don't have rights. Yeah, I, and, and and we're back to the culture discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, unless unless you travel around, unless you talk to people from other places, or you go to those other places, you lack perspective, and it impacts your judgment to others who are more traveled or more culturally knowledgeable. And you, you know, uh, you know, it's it's a level of ignorance that you know. I mean, if you've lived in one place and that's all you know, then it's all you know. But um, that doesn't mean that just because you feel something and you feel it strongly, I mean, you can be totally wrong about it. You know, uh, just because you feel a certain way, you know, a lot of other people have it worse than we do in Washington in some ways. Uh, like, uh, you know, when we petition the court, you know, it's a lot different here than in other states. Or, you know, when we hire an attorney, it's, it's different. And then uh, you have to talk to people from other places in order to get a sense of that. But you also have to care to learn about what it's like in other places. And I think uh, for the average American, it's like, I don't really have time for that unless it really concerns me. So I think people have these willing blinders of uh, convenience whether it's naivete or convenience or whatever it is but um, I, I, I think convenience has a lot to do with it and whether or not it's relevant to you know their little world yeah and I think more than yeah. more than that is that I, I feel that a lot of people may assume that one law must mean it's the law for the United States all states not just my state. Well, I, I've been in marijuana uh, prohibition. <laughs> I, I did that. Uh, for, And I can tell you that it's not the same at all states. Right. It's you not. Know, I, I've been a speaker for that. Right. I've been a speaker. They just now got medical in, in Missouri, and they're fighting it Houston now um, uh, because they're, um, they're having the Highway Patrol do backgrounds on people that are applying for medical cards, which I don't know why they should be getting in the middle of of medical treatment, but they are. Um, so I can, huh. I, I can tell you, you know, I've been in, I, I've been in, uh, in marijuana, uh, with the cannabis stuff for since 2011. And it's, I've been all over the country speaking and it's not the same everywhere. So, um, no, that's, uh, that's something. And I, I think with the marijuana thing, I, I think most people who would partake in it know that the laws are different from state to state. They definitely know right. that. I'm talking about other other laws where it might be, like you said, in Washington State, only the driver, uh, the police only have the right to uh, check the ID of the driver, uh, driver's license stuff, not everybody right. in the car. Whereas I wouldn't have not known yeah. that. I would have thought, oh, well, if I'm in driving through Missouri, uh, don't look at me. Get the guy who's driving. Let's, nope, need your license well, too. You're going to be eating pavement. <laughs> right. You're going to eat pavement. You're going to be taken out of the car, so, eating pavement, because they have a, a law there called uh, failure to comply. So if you don't comply to a police officer's lawful um, command, well, what is lawful command? That's interpretive. So that's one thing, you know, I, I would always tell my students. Um, uh, in city Missouri, that's why I got involved with teaching high school uh, criminal justice in the high in the high crime 
my poverty area that I was in North St. Louis was because I was, as a professor, I was seeing these kids at 17th illegal adult in Missouri. And as a professor, I was seeing these kids come through my classrooms that were, would be great in the criminal justice and they had the right mentality, they had the background, but for some reason they took either bad advice or something and they had uh, criminal cases where it would have stopped them dead in their tracks. And so I wanted to teach those kids before they got to that 17, which is a legal adult Missouri, and tell them, okay, this is what we need to do. And, and this is how we're going to, and this is the legal advice, because a lot of them would just take a case and say, or they would let the case just fester and not even worry about it because well, it's not going to bother me. But um, that's, but I've seen my kids. I had one kid that was um, past the ASVAB. He was, he was going to MEPS, going to the military. And he had caught a case and is now incarcerated for 22 years in the state of Missouri. And there, it was not a murder. It was not drug-related. It was with some people that robbed someone. And even the people said, well, he really wasn't involved. And they still gave him 22 years. Wow. He, was when I, he wasn't a kid that I it was in my school, but yeah. It, so yeah, that's uh, it's very different. <laughs> very, and I would imagine, like you said, the the law of uh, comply. <laughs> um, it, it's better to comply. Yeah, I, I would imagine if somebody that did not know say that they're driving through there and they have a concealed weapons license and they get pulled over and the police say, "Out of the car, hands on," and I I go to say, "I have a concealed," and they say, "Don't talk, hands on," and then they come and they first you, then they feel the the firearm, then they jump back, draw theirs, and then you're like, I tried telling you. So there would be a difference than that. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, wow. So, yeah, I, I guess that means if you take a road trip, map it out, and know some right. of the basic no, laws. laws. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's just uh, know some basic stuff. Well, I think somebody here is going to have to put together a basic law app for travel <laughs> right it would be a good one yeah uh-huh. especially i hey i think they are i think they uh some i think a marijuana activist actually did that because this is what's been happening colorado is a state like us they can they can use you know pretty freely recreational life and then illinois is so in between colorado and illinois is a beautiful state of missouri and the beautiful state of kansas well the troopers said, wait for the people coming from Colorado or from Illinois into those two states. Oh, no. So that's been a whole problem. Yeah. Sean, that means do not go for a concert from one place and cross <laughs> the county line and, or the state line to the other. So. Duly noted. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, my t- I, I've got to scoot on out of here, but okay. I, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah. Before you take off, do you want to once again let everybody know where they could get your book on Amazon and the name of your book? Uh, they can. It is, um, my, my book is under the name Betty Frizzell, which is my uh, maiden name, because I just recently went through a divorce after 26 years. And how do you spell Ooh. the last name? Yeah, congrats. How do you spell your last name? Uh, it's like less, it's F-R-I-Z-Z-E-L-L. It's like uh, Lefty Frizzell, the musician. He was my grandpa. Someone related to my grandma, way bit down the line. My mom calls him Dog Ken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> related way down the line, but the book is called uh, "If You Can't Quit, uh, You Can't Come Here Again If You Can't Quit Crying." That was the first thing my sister said to me when I seen her in prison for the first time, because I couldn't quit crying, and, and I don't cry. 
song can tell you this. <laughs> and they could and they could get it on Amazon, correct? Yes, they're pre, they're selling pre orders right now through Feral House Publishing, right here out of the great state of Washington. Excellent. And what's the name of it? Um, if you can't quit crying, you can't come here anymore. I think it's okay. they changed it a few times on me, so let me make sure. <laughs> uh, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's my own book, but they changed it. I wanted to call it uh, Ain't Right, but they said, Betty, come on now. We know you got a southern accent sometimes. <laughs> we want them to know that you actually can write, that you're not using wrong wrong verbiage. So, but, uh, oh, great. So, right, but, you know, it wasn't right. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's this, the book is about, just give a quick one so people know what it's about. So when they go get it, they'll say, that's what I want. It's about transgenerational uh, trauma, the criminal justice system, rural prov- poverty, and mental health. There you go, folks. And murder. There's several murders. <laughs> I'll reserve comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, this right, is fantastic. Talking, y'all. Yeah, this is great. Thank Thanks you very much. Show, okay, well, thank you guys. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, thanks, take care.